0: This morning's sermon text is found in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother.
1: Oh, Father, how very, very needy we are. There's a famine in the land, not a famine of bread but a famine of the Word. And if we are to eat it now, you will have to come and feed us now. And so please come and make me faithful to your truth as it's revealed in the first epistle of John. And give an ear and a heart and a mind to your people to listen. And for those here who are not your people, who are not yet born of God and do not have saving faith, I ask that you would cause them, by the agency and the power of your Word and Spirit, to be born again under the preaching of your Word. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. I chose this text for two reasons this morning. One is because it's Christmas Sunday morning, and verse 8, the second half of the verse, is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible why there's a Christmas. Namely, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came, Christmas exists, to destroy the work of the devil. The other reason is that we're in Romans chapter 2, in a series, and the issue that's been raised in Romans 2, especially verse 7, is that eternal life is being given by God to those who persevere in good deeds, which has raised the specter of how... A life of love and good deeds relates to our final verdict at the judgment day. And I've tried to argue that good deeds do not replace faith as the means by which we get connected to Jesus, who is the foundation of our life, but rather the demonstration or the evidence of faith. Now, this text in John is really relevant for that whole constellation of issues that surrounds Romans 2, 6 to 10. So those are my two reasons for choosing this passage of Scripture. I think the most helpful way to come at this would be to step back from the text and look at the whole epistle of John to show two Dimensions of this letter that look contradictory. And it's helpful to have them in one letter because then if you were to spot one way over in Romans and one way over in James, say, you might think, whoa, we got two authors that don't agree with each other here, and so we got to choose between them. But if you find the same kind of thing in one letter, time after time, you're inclined to say, Maybe my thinking has to adjust here a little bit, and I need to figure out how to put these things together instead of calling one author or another defective. Now, the tension that I have in mind in 1 John is that it seems to be the most perfectionistic of all the letters in the New Testament and the most non-perfectionistic of all the letters in the New Testament. Now, first, let's look at the text that suggests it is the most perfectionistic of all the letters in the New Testament, seemingly. And if I were you, I would take a pencil or pen, and in the margin, by each of these verses that I'm going to give you now, put N-S, not sin. And then I'm going to give you a whole slug of verses where you'll put S, (laughs) sin. Sin. And then when somebody comes to you and says, look here, it says, Christians never sin. What do you make of that? You will be able, without my help, to just take them on a little tour of this letter to show them that they need to get all the pieces together. Okay? So let's do the NS verses first. We'll start at chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep His commandments. I put an N-S in the margin. That seems to indicate that the only people that know God are those who keep the commandments. No qualifications. How should we qualify? Now go to chapter 3, verse 6. We'll move into our text here for a minute. 1 John 3 6, no one who abides in him sins. So you put NS in the margin, not sin. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now down to verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. So another NS in the margin. Those who are born of God don't practice sin because his seed abides in them and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Exactly the same thing in chapter 5 verse 18. I'm not going to go there. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Chapter 5 verse 18. N.S. Chapter 4 verse 8. No one who does not love, I'm I'm sorry, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the only people who know God are people who love. You don't know him if you don't love. That's enough of those. Let's look at the other side. Now, the other side are texts that seem to show that this letter is one of the most non-perfectionistic. And I don't think I'm overstating the case here. There are not many books of the New Testament that plainly say Christian sin. This one says it very plainly several times, in spite of all those verses that I just gave you. Start at chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. If we say... We have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, the we, in verse 9, is Christians. If we confess our sins... And if we don't, we're in big trouble. Therefore, we obviously have sinned and do sin. Chapter 2, verse 1 makes it even plainer. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. So put an S in the margin here. These are the sin verses. S. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then comes this word. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, you couldn't couldn't ask for anything more sweetly balanced for us real-life sinners than than that verse, I don't think. The the Bible is written that we might not sin. And the Bible is written to tell us, if we sin, we have an advocate. (laughs) And you may breathe. (gasps) I do. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Yes, already we are the children of God. And it does not appear, has not appeared as yet, what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will then be like Him because we will see Him as He is, which means now we're not yet like Him. We're not yet like Him. And that's why there's a purifying work in order. One more text. Chapter 5 verses 6 to 17. This this one is probably the clearest of all. This one makes me know that this writer is writing against perfectionism. He's not accidentally teaching against perfectionism. He is intentionally teaching against perfectionism. And you'll see that as we read this. Start at verse 16 of chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin. Now, a word on translation here. Got to do this now and then. The Greek has no word for a or an. It has a word for the. And when it's there, you generally translate it the. When it's not there, you got an option. Either translate an a or don't translate an a depending on what works. You decide here what works. I think we ought to leave the A out. Because A connotes a particular sin like, woo, lust, you know, or murder or something. That's not the point here. The point here that there's a kind of sinning. There is sinning. All right, notice, I'm going to read it like that. I'm going to leave the A's out three times in this letter is in this text so here i go again verse 16 if anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death he shall ask god he shall ask and god will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death so you see there's sin that brothers are committing Brothers are committing sin we should pray for them so God will forgive them. So got like brothers committing sin here. Christian sin. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. We're talking here now about Esau. There is a line And after you cross that line, you are sinning in a way that will never be forgiven. And I just pray that you won't cross it. You do not know where it is, which is why I warn you Sunday after Sunday, fight sin. It can kill you. Now, verse 17 makes me think this writer is explicitly opposing perfectionism. He says, All unrighteousness is sin. As though some people were kind of thinking, Well, there's sin and then there's, you know, little unrighteousnesses." All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. You see, what is the point of that? It's because there were people in this community who were black and white kind of people. You sin, you perish. You a Christian, you don't sin. That's what he was dealing with in this church. And so verse 17 is crystal clear in the face of that perfectionism. There, all unrighteousness is sin. Don't divvy these things up into Two categories, all unrighteousness is sin. There is sin not leading to death, meaning leading to eternal life. Is that clear, Christian? You will sin. Now, that's not an invitation. It's hope on Christmas for real people in the real world we do not believe in perfectionism because the Bible teaches against perfectionism. Not that you shouldn't aim not to sin. I write these things to you that you may not sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. Aren't you glad? You did some this week. You better be glad. There is sin that does not lead to death. Praise God! There is forgiven sin. There is the struggle with sin that does not lead to death. Now let's go back to our text. All of that to show you there's the NS column and there's the S column. Now we're going back to our text to put it against this backdrop. 1 John 3, 6... No one who abides in him sins. Okay, what in the world then does that mean? And verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin. So here's my effort to put the pieces together. So my approach to a a writer like John, who, who is willing to risk these kinds of tensions as he writes, I hope you don't, worry too much. If something you hear one Sunday from me sounds a little bit different from something you hear the next Sunday and say, John needs to get his act together. I had a guy come up after service a couple Sundays ago and he said, in the last two minutes of your sermon on Romans 2, 7, you took away everything you said in the first 30 minutes. So we spent about five minutes trying to explain how I didn't but that's what he heard and you can imagine what some unsympathetic reader would do with John. He says get your act together. Do they sin or do they not sin? I mean, you can't have it both ways. And he's not dumb. He knows that. He's weaving all this together because he's got two big agendas to achieve. Okay, here's what I think he means. I've said this before. I'm sure I'll say it many, many more times. That in the Greek, the present tense is an ongoing, continuous action. And the word practices here is helpful. To get at the idea, it would go something like this in verse 6. No one who abides in him goes on sinning in a way that would correspond to not seeing it as sin, hating it as sin, confessing it as sin, and fighting it as sin. In that sense, if you go on in sin, if you go on in sin as though nothing mighty has ever happened to you at the new birth, if you are cavalier about your sin, if you don't fight your sin, if you don't confess your sin, if you don't hate your sin, then You should hear the warning, you may not be born again. That's the point here. Christians don't go on sinning without conflict and confession. I base that on just putting all the pieces together. The piece from chapter 1, if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. And the call for us not to sin... Now, I said this was relevant for Romans 2.7, and I just want to draw your attention to that. I want to get into it too much because it'll take too much time, but remember, here's what Romans 2.7 said. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, in John's language, that would mean to those who love others. To those who love others, who persevere in loving people, seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. That does not mean perfectionism. We know it from John. We know it from Jesus. We know it from Paul. Now it's clearer because of these texts we've looked at. It means that there is an ongoing perseverance in the fight to triumph over the sins we hate in our lives. And sanctification is the progressive getting of more triumph as we get older and riper in the things of God. There's an order here in John, 1 John. You don't avoid sin in order to get connected to God. Now, this is what's called religion. Christianity, in a very profound sense, is not religion. Religion is man's effort to get connected to God. And he'll do works... He'll do philanthropy, especially at Christmas time when the bells are ringing. He'll do things in the hope that doing things for God will get him connected to God and God will be nice to him and he'll have a clear conscience and go to heaven and not to hell. That's religion. Christianity is not religion. Christianity is the sovereign inbreaking of Almighty God into the world who one-sidedly takes the initiative to get connected to man, who then responds in grateful trust to God. There's a world of difference between Christianity and religion. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3 for an evidence of what I'm saying here. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 14 we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. The knowing that you did get born again and passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, knowing that is based on the evidence of the fruit of it, namely, you love people. So don't reverse this into religion. Don't say, oh, Christianity is a religion of love by which if you love people, you get connected with life in God and then you can go to heaven. Don't do that. It's hopeless. It is hopeless to try to get connected to God in that way. So if you ask right now, Well, how do you get connected? If love is the fruit of the connection and the evidence by which we can know we're connected and have passed from death to life, how do you get connected so that there's life inside? Ask, how how do you make the new birth happen? And the answer is, there is nothing you can do to make the new birth happen. Any more than a baby can make his own birth happen. Nothing. 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 You can't believe the new birth into happening. You can't love the new birth into happening. You can't work the new birth into happening because the new birth has to happen so that you can believe and so that you can love and so that you can work. We are dead. As soon as we realize this, we will begin to love the grace of God the way we ought to love the grace of God. We were dead, folks. And dead men do not walk out of the tomb. They must be raised by the power of God. That's what Ephesians 2.5 says. While we were dead in trespasses and sins, God, according to the great love with which He loved us, raised us up with Christ so how do you get right with God here you sit and do you want to get right with God Do you want a right relationship with God? Do you want peace with God? The biblical answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be right with God. Trust Christ, and you will be right with God. And when you trust Him, fall on your face and thank Him that He awakened your heart to believe. Called the new birth. Look at verse 8. I want you to see this now. Second half of verse 8. The Son of God appeared, that is, deity was clothed with humanity, born of a virgin, walked in obedience, laid down his life, rose from the dead, for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Well, the context is real clear what the works of the devil are. Verse 5 is a perfect parallel with verse 8. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So sins parallel the works of the devil in verse 5 and verse 8. And then verse 8 itself. Just keep on reading. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So clearly the works of the devil are sin, sinning. God, by the new birth, has come into us. According to the rest of verse 9, he has planted his seed within us. That seed, the Holy Spirit, has begun to work, a new work, opening us to faith, opening us to love Christ, opening us to hate sin, so that now we triumph by the work of the Holy Spirit within us by hating sin And ultimately we'll get to the point where sin is so ugly and righteousness is so beautiful we won't even be able to sin. Now I want to draw out in these last few minutes some practical implications of this and give you three Christmas presents of implications. But to do that, I want to connect this truth in verse 8 that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil with the truth in verse 1 of chapter 2. So we're going to have two truths beside each other, which appeared to me as so wonderful in preparation. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. In other words, I'm promoting the purpose of Christmas. Because it says in 3.8 that... The Son of God appeared to take away the works of the devil, that is, to keep us from sinning. To destroy the works of the devil, that is, sinning. So here he says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. I'm joining the purpose of the Incarnation and Christmas. And then he says, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now look, let's put these two things beside each other and see if you see the implications I do, three of them. Here are the two things that are standing beside each other. Christ came for two reasons, not just one reason. He came to destroy sin in my life. Christ came as a baby, lived as a man, died like a criminal, rose triumphant so that John Piper would stop sinning to destroy the works of the devil. And then put beside it, he came, according to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to make a propitiation. That's a big fancy word for Appeasing the wrath of God so that God would not pour out His anger upon me in my sin but rather has poured it out on Christ in His substitutionary death so He came to destroy sinning and He came to forgive sins now let's hold those together it's these two things that create the tension in this book It's these two things that bring unbelievably wonderful hope into our lives this Christmas. So I want to draw out three implications by this juxtaposition. He came to destroy your sinning, and He came to forgive your sin. Number one. First implication is this. You have a clear purpose for living in 1999. What is it? It's this. Don't sin. Plan that, all right? Don't sin in 1999. Now, if you say to me, that's not a very positive purpose, Give us a positive purpose. Fine. I'll give you a positive statement of this. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. This is perhaps the most important verse in this book because I believe it is the summary of everything he's saying in the letter. And I base that on the fact that the word commandment is singular at the beginning of the verse. And followed by two commands, not one. Let's read this verse. 1 John 3, 23. This is His commandment. One, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And two, that we love one another, just as He commanded us. In other words, in John's mind, these two things, trusting Jesus and loving people, are so closely connected, they are one commandment. It's why Jesus probably said, the great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is what? Like it. John says, they're one we got one commandment. That's all I ask. Christianity has one commandment: trust Jesus and love people. Trust Jesus and love people. So, if you don't like the the goal of ninety nine, don't sin. Fine, scrap that one. Take this one. The goal of nineteen ninety nine is trust Jesus and love people. Every day, all day. Trust Jesus, love people. Trust Jesus, love people. Trust Jesus, love people. And if you unpack, like John does, what trust is, and what love is, that'll keep you busy in 99. Both in your head, and in your heart, and in your body, and in your family, and at your work. And it'll be a wonderful year. So that's the first gift I give to you. I give you a purpose for 99. When you put beside each other that He came to take away your sinning and He came to forgive your sins, know from this one, helped by this one, you got a purpose in 99. Don't sin, or put positively, Trust Jesus moment by moment for everything you need. I wonder if that little addition throws you because of how many evangelicals just think trust Jesus means walk an aisle, say you believe he died for you, and then go trust money for the rest of the week. That's not a Christian. Trust Jesus means trust Jesus! For your money. Trust Jesus for your health. Trust Jesus for your marriage. Trust Jesus for your kids. Trust Jesus for your health. Trust Jesus all the time for every single threat to your peace. And in that marvelous freedom from anxiety, love people. Now here's my second gift or second implication from this. We make progress in overcoming our sin when we have hope that our failures will be forgiven. We make progress in overcoming our sins when we have hope that our failures will be forgiven. Do you see where I'm getting that? Let's put them up here again. I'm I'm putting my hands up here just so you get it. He came to destroy the works of the devil, which are our sins. So let's make progress in overcoming sins. And then he also came so that if you sin, you have an advocate who pleads his propitiatory blood for you when you fail. I tell you, that is such good news. Because if you don't have the freedom to fail, you won't fight. Just, come on now, just examine last year's New Year's resolutions. Just examine how many times you try. I made a list here of things I think you want to change. I just imagined. I'll bet there are people sitting here who want so bad some new patterns of eating. New patterns of TV watching. New patterns of giving after my chastisement last week to the slackers, I called them. I said, I only say that in the first service. You know why? There are more homebodies in this service. More visitors in the second one, so i ease up on them. I know there are a lot of visitors here, too. And I just plead your indulgence. (laughs) I think after last Sunday, a lot of people, a lot of couples, a lot of single people are saying, we really blew it financially this year. I had one come tell me so. We really blew it. We didn't give anything like We should give in view of the grace of God in our lives. And so some of you are hoping for a new pattern of giving. Some are hoping for a new pattern of family devotions. Some are hoping for a new pattern of relating to your spouse. And you wish you could make it work. And the communication click and the intimacy be sweet. And others are looking for a new pattern of sleep and exercise. And others new patterns of courage and witness at work. You're just so tired of being chicken hearted and you want to be new. And here I am. My gift to you, for all of you longers, and I hope you're all longing to be getting more victory over the works of the devil with Jesus. My gift to you is this. Let the freedom to fail give you the hope to fight. Let the freedom to fail give you the hope to fight. Because I know that if you enter the fight thinking that a failure will nullify the fight or the ability to get up and fight again, you will simply say, there's no use. There's just no use. I've tried this too many times and it doesn't work. So, remember where I'm getting at. I'm not just making this up. This is not a nifty little saying about the freedom to fail will help you fight. It sounds nice. I like it. But look, it's based on two massive truths. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, fight. Jesus came so that if you sin, you've got an advocate so you're free to fail without being destroyed. There is a sin that is not under death. Take heart. Get up. Go on. Every time you fall. That's a Christmas present I receive with much gratitude. Here's my last one. And we're done. Christ will really help you fight. Christ, I mean the living, exalted, reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will today at home help you fight. He will help you. He will help you. I base it on this hand. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And oh, if I had other time, I would take you all over the Bible to show you that God's will is to help you. He'll pursue you with goodness and mercy all your days. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Be content with what you have. Therefore, we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Therefore, we can confidently say, what can man do to me? He will help you. And therefore, trust him. Trust him. So the way you get right with God, all you unbelievers in this room, is not to try to play God and get yourself born. You can't get yourself born. God does that. And my prayer, oh God, do it, is that as I speak, you are awakening to the truth of what I say. And the way you get right with God now is the same way that all of us Christians go on living our lives. There's not a way to get saved and a way to live the Christian life. They're the same. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Jesus in 1999, trust him with your finances, trust him with your family, trust him with your kids, trust him with your health, trust him with your job, trust him, that's saving faith, so in summary here my three gifts again, you got a purpose in 99, namely don't sin, or positively Trust Jesus and love each other. And love hard hard people. Love them. Love them. That's hard. Do it. Oh, Republicans, love Democrats. It It was a vicious week, right? Democrats, love these guys. Good night. Churches act like that sometimes. Love each other. Gift number two, the freedom to fail Gives us hope in the fight. The freedom to fail. Gives us hope in the fight. We have an advocate. Join the son of God as he destroys the works of the devil. In your life. And the third gift is. He's going to help you. He really will help you. I mean livingly. Now presently. Help you. He will. You stand for the benediction. Now may the Lord give you a triumphant Christmas and may we join our voices in praise one more time on Christmas Eve before that great Christmas morning. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.